Well, good morning. This is a little bit of, this is Granny D, a little bit of an underweather Granny D, not feeling so good. Um, but we all have things that happen in our lives, so I, instead of hiding it, I figured I'd express it to everybody and let you know that I was struggling. And if you've got a few prayers and energies to send my way, please do. All right, so... Here we are on TR90. This is going to be a very simple, basic call today, I think, just getting, letting you know what I've been finding out. So we've been working on sleep with brain rules, and yesterday I did a, oh God, I can't even remember what I was talking on yesterday. <laughs> that, isn't that wonderful? So anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, today I'm moving on, actually I was starting to move on stress, that's right, I did a thing on three things you can do to help you feel less stressed, I wish, I would like to feel less stressed a lot myself right now, anyway, brain rules, John Medina, rule number eight, stressed brains don't learn the same way, your body's defense system the release of adrenaline and cortisol is built for an immediate response to serious but passing danger, such as a saber-toothed tiger. Chronic stress, such as hostility at home, dangerously deregulates a system built only to deal with short-term responses. Okay, under chronic stress, Adrenaline creates scars in your blood vessels that can cause a heart attack or stroke, and cortisol damages the cells of the hippocampus, crippling your ability to learn and remember. Individually, the worst kind of stress is the feeling that you have no control over the problem and you are helpless. <laughs> yeah, I'm feeling a little bit that way that right now. <laughs> and emotional stress has huge impacts across society on children's ability to learn in school and, and on employees' productivity at work. Now, the beginning of this story or this piece today is, is kind of sad. It makes me, it really bothers me, but it's good information to have. This is, by any measure, a thoroughly rotten experiment. Here is, here is this beautiful German shepherd lying on one corner of a metal box, whimpering. He is receiving painful electric shocks, stimuli that should never leave him howling in pain. Oddly enough, the dog could easily get out. The other side of the box is perfectly insulated from the shocks, and only a barrier separates the two sides and only a low barrier separates the two sides. Though the dog could jump over to safety, when the whim strikes him, it's strange, but the whim doesn't strike him, ever. He just lies down on the corner of the electric side, whimpering with each jarring bolt. He must be physically removed by the experimenter to be relieved from the experience. What has happened to the dog? A few days before entering the box, the animal was strapped to a restraining harness rigged with electric wires, inescapably receiving the same painful shock day and night. 
At first, he didn't just stand there taking it. He reacted. He howled in pain. He urinated. He strained mightily against his harness in an increasingly desperate attempt to link some behavior of his with the cessation of the pain. But it was no use. As the hours and even days ticked by, his resistance eventually subsided. Why? The dog began to receive a very clear message. The pain was not going to stop. The shocks were not going, were going to be forever and that there was no way out. Even after the dog had been released from the harness and placed into the metal box with an escape route, he could no longer understand his options. Indeed, most learning had been shut down and that's probably the worst part of it all. Those of you who familiar with psychology already know Medina is describing a famous set of experiments begun in the late 1960s by a legendary psychologist, Martin Siegelman, S-E-L-I-G-M-A-N. He coined the term learned helplessness to describe both the perception of inescapability and the associated cognitive collapse. Many animals behave in a similar fashion when punishment is unavoidable, and that includes humans. Inmates in, a con- in concentration camps root- routinely experience these symptoms in response to the horrid conditions of their internment, and some, ta- some camps even gave it a name, GAMEL, G-A-M-E-L, derived from the colloquial German word GAMELN, G-A-M-E-L-N, which literally means rotting. Perhaps not surprisingly, Singleman has now spent the balance of his career studying how humans respond to optimism. What is so awful about severe chronic stress is that it can wreck such extraordinary... Okay, what is so awful about severe chronic stress that it can wreck such extraordinary changes in behavior. Why is learning so radically altered? So let's begin with the definition of stress. Talk about biological responses and then move to the relationship between stress and learning. Along the way, we will talk about marriage and parenting, about the workplace, about the first and only time he ever heard his mother a fourth-grade teacher swear. It was her first real encounter with learned helplessness. First one, terror and titillation. Medina begins with an attempt at definitions, and as is true of all things cognitive, we suddenly run into turbulence. First, not all stress is the same. Certain types of stress really hurt learning, but some types of stress boost learning. Second, it is difficult to to detect when someone is experiencing stress. Some people love skydiving for recreation. To others, it's their worst nightmare. Is jumping out of an airplane inherently stressful? The answer is no, and that highlights the subjective nature of stress. The body isn't much help in providing a definition either. There is no unique group of physiological responsible responses capable of telling a scientist whether 
or not you are experiencing stress. The reason? Many of the same mechanisms that cause you to shrink in horror from a predator are also used when you are having sex or even while you are consuming your Thanksgiving dinner. To your body, saber-toothed tigers and orgasms and turkey and gravy look remarkably similar. An aroused physiological state is characteristic of both stress and pleasure. So what's a scientist to do? A few years ago, gifted research, a gifted, no, gifted researchers, Jean Sock Kim and David Diamond, Jean Sock, J-E-A-N-S-O-K, Kim and David Diamond, came up with a three-part definition that covers many of the bases. In their view, if all three are happening simultaneously, a person is stressed. Part one, there must be an aroused physiological response to stress, and it must be measurable by an outside party. He saw this in obvious fashion the first time his, his, his then 18-month-old son encountered a carrot on his plate at dinner. His son promptly went ballistic. The child screamed and cried and peed in his diaper. His aroused physiological state immediately measurable by his dad, John Medina, and probably by anyone else within half a mile of, his, of the kitchen table. Part two, the stressor must be perceived as adversive. The stressor must be perceived as adversive, A-S. No, adversive, A-V-E-R-S-I-V-E. This can be assessed by a single question. If you had the ability to turn down the severity of this experience or to avoid it altogether, would you? It was obviously where Medina's son stood on the matter. Within seconds, he took the carrot off his plate and threw it on the floor. Then he deftly got down off his chair and tried to stomp the carrot on the predatory, (laughs) sorry, he tried to stomp on the predatory vegetable. The avoidance question was answered in full. Part three, the person must not feel in control of the stressor. Like a volume knob on your emotional radio, the more the loss of control, the more severe the stress is perceived to be. This element of control is closely related, sorry, this element of control and its closely related twin predictability lie at the heart of learned helplessness. Medina's son reacted as strongly as he did in part because he knew that Medina wanted him to eat the carrot, and he was used to doing what his dad told him to do. Control was the issue. Despite Medina picking up the carrot, washing it, and then rubbing his tummy while enthusiastically saying yum yum, his son was having none of it. Or more important, his son was wanting to have none of it and he thought Medina was going to make him have all of it. Out of control, carrot equaled 
out-of-control behavior. When you find the trinity of components working together, sorry, when you find this trinity of components working together, you have the type of stress easily, easily measurable in laboratory setting. In a, in a laboratory setting. And when Medina talks about stress, he's usually referring to situations like this. All right, so there's part one. There must be an aroused physiological response to the stress. Part two, the stressor must be perceived as aversive. And three, there's three, the person must not feel in control of the stressor. So those are the three things that impact you. Now, let's see. I don't think we have time to finish all this, but I'll just do the last little bit here. Flooding the system. You can feel your body responding to stress. Your pulse races. Your blood pressure rises, and you feel a massive release of energy. That's the famous hormone adrenaline at work. It's spurred into action by your brain's hypothalamus, the pea-sized organ sitting almost in the middle of your head. And when your sensory systems detect stress, the hypothalamus reacts by sending a signal to your adrenal glands, lying far away on the roof of your kidneys. The glands immediately dump bucket loads of adrenaline into your bloodstream. The overall effect is called the fight or flight response. There is a less famous hormone at work too, also released by the adrenals. And just as powerful as adrenaline, it is called cortisol. And you you can think of it as the elite strike force of the human stress response. It's, second wave, it's the second wave of our defense reactions to stresses. And in small doses, it wipes out most unpleasant aspects of stress, returning us to normalcy. So why do our bodies need to go through all this trouble? The answer is very simple. Without a flexible, immediately available, highly related stress response, we would die. Remember... The brain is the world's most sophisticated survival or organ. All of its many complexities are built towards a mildly erotic, singularly selfish goal to live long enough to thrust our genes into the next generation. Our reactions to stress serve the, the live long enough part of this goal. Stress helps us manage the, stress, the stresses and threats that could keep us from procreating. And I'm going to stop right there. All righty then. This is Granny D. Dorcas Smith signing out for the day. I survived the call. Go me. I survived my stressor. <laughs> so have a good day. God bless. And Susan will be speaking tomorrow about all the wonderful foods we need to eat. I hope you have a great day, and God bless. Thank you. That was quite fascinating. (laughs) I think so, too.
which is why I wanted to try and get it in today. So I appreciate ah. everybody's patience and listening to me. And keep your fingers crossed that I do okay. I will do more than that. I'll send hugs and prayers. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So everybody have a great day, and we'll we'll hear you tomorrow, I hope. Oh, yes, you'll hear me tomorrow. <laughs> Take <Okay>. care. <laughs> you too. Bye-bye.